You can turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Uh, I've noticed recently that um, my kids really like commercials. And I'm trying to train them to be cynics. You know, really good, solid Christian cynics. If the TV's on and somebody's selling you something, they're lying. Okay? And I want them to just have that drilled into their minds. So the other day we were, we were watching U.S. Open tennis tournament. Actually, I was watching the tournament and uh, kids were playing. There, there were Legos out and some dolls and a bunch of junk. So they're playing over there. I'm watching the tournament. Tournament takes a little break and a commercial comes on. It's a commercial for an, for an iPad. And I've seen this commercial, it's really, it's cool. It's a really cool commercial. You know, guy's playing a keyboard on his iPad. You know, he sets a little tune for the whole commercial. And then he's flipping it around, showing videos and images. And, you know, Ben and Joy and I were all like, wow, that's really cool. You know, commercial ends and Ben turned to me and he goes, Daddy, you need one of those. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I need one. And Tracy said, no, you don't need one of those. You don't need it. The world's talking to you and they're lying to you. They're trying to sell something to you. They're lying to you. They, they, they can tell you that this will make your life better, richer, fuller, but it won't. It, it might make it a little more comfortable and a little more convenient, but it can't make you more like Jesus Christ to own an iPad. <gasps> it's true. Or a Mercedes or anything else that came on during the U.S. Open. The only thing that really lasts is Christ-like character, and only God can give that to you. Hopefully you notice that as we've been working our way through 1 Peter, the theme that I'm trying to trace to kind of tie the whole book together is this idea of living the good life. Okay, what is the good life? And where I'm drawing this from is a particular Greek word that Peter uses eight times in the book of 1 Peter. It's anastrepho. He uses it another two times in 2 Peter. The word basically means your, your conduct, your public conduct, your private conduct, the way that you live out your life. And Peter is going to say that essentially the good life is simply this. It is the imitation of Jesus Christ. Peter lived for three years with Jesus Christ. He watched Jesus Christ and he said, that's how life should be lived. Follow the pattern, the example that you have in Jesus Christ. That is what will make life rich and fulfilling and complete. That's how it works. That's the good life. And what Peter is going to do in this next big section that we look at is he's going to lay out uh, six uh, ingredients or characteristics of this good life, this imitation of Jesus Christ. He's going to talk about hope, holiness, love, worship, witness, and submission. And he's going to talk about six themes. And what he's going to say is, when you live this life, the normal response of the world is that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Because living this life really works well. But sometimes the world is going to see you living this way, and they're going to reject it because they're going to feel convicted, and they will hate you, and they will persecute you. Then what do you do? Well, that starts the next major section in chapter 3, verse 13. How do you respond as aliens and strangers living for a temporary time in this world, scattered throughout the world for worship and witness. How do you live in a hostile world? Peter's going to address that. This morning, though, I want to look at these first two, hope and holiness. I want you to read with me beginning in chapter 1 and verse 13. Peter writes, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. 
Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. The mindset of a good life is hope. This is the first command or the first imperative that Peter has given. Previous to this, Peter has given a lot of descriptive terms of who you are and what God has done for you. You have been regenerated by the mercy of God poured out upon you. As a result, you have this inheritance which can't be touched. It's imperishable, undefiled. It will not fade away. God has accomplished all of this for you. In other words, he begins by talking about your identity before he begins to make demands or imperatives or list out. Now, here's the response to these things. The first imperative is that you set your hope completely. In other words, the first imperative is not that you do something in particular. It's not a behavior, so to speak, but it's a mindset. It's an orientation. Because our behavior won't change until our beliefs change. Our behavior won't change until what we really love and value in the world changes. And so Peter's first imperative is set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to hope? Hope is a confident expectation that God will, in fact, fulfill his promises. We don't use that word normally in that way. Hope in the world is wishful thinking. It's the end of the third quarter, and I hope the Aggies will come back. But I don't know, right? Wow, they did. That's wonderful. I hoped and I prayed. But it's not confidence. It's not confident expectation. The hope that we have in God is the confident expectation that he will, in fact, Fulfill his promises. And so Peter says, set your hope completely on the grace that is literally being carried to you. The grace that God is carrying to you, delivering to you, that you don't have yet. Remember, in 1 Peter, his whole orientation is future. He says, how do you live now in this moment as aliens and stranger in light of what's coming to you? And this phrase, grace being carried to you, is basically, it's just shorthand for Peter to refer to all that you're going to receive when you see Jesus Christ face to face. Johnny read about it earlier in 1 John chapter 3. He says, we're not exactly sure what will come, but we know this, when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And we see him as he is, we will be transformed into his likeness. And we will no longer battle with temptation and sin. The flesh will be removed and the physical body will be healed. It will not decay. And we will step into this eternal inheritance which cannot be touched, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And there will be no more sorrows, no more tears, no more, no more battles. We will have fought and won. He says, set your hope on that, that moment that you see Jesus Christ 
face to face. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, which means do not set your hope in what the world has to offer. If the world is promising you something, it's lying. The world can add to your comfort and add to your convenience, but can't add to your Christ-likeness. Do not love the world or the things in the world, John said. Why? Because all that is in the world is fading. All that the world promises will not last. Believe it. Bank on it. But all that God promises cannot be touched. How do we do that? Well, the main verb here in chapter 1, verse 13, first verb is this command, this imperative. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But then he throws in uh, two other verbs that serve to uh, modify it or explain it. How do we actually set our hope completely on this grace? He's going to give us two phrases. The first is literally, gird up the loins of your mind. That's weird. Uh, I, I didn't use that phrase at all this week. It's not really kind of normal English vernacular. Gird up the loins of your mind. That, that doesn't even make sense. What's he talking about? Well, you know, if you lived in Peter's day, it made perfect sense because the men all wore dresses, right? Long robes, and what would they do? If they needed to get someplace fast, hitch it up, tuck it in, go. Israel was told at the first Passover, I want you to eat this Passover meal, not as if you're kicked back at home, but as if you're ready to march. So gird up your robes, put your sandals on, Grab your staff and eat fast. Okay? That's literally what he says in Exodus chapter 12. Because God is about to break into your world. He's going to do something radical. You can't even imagine. He's going to crush Pharaoh and rescue you. So you need to be ready for him to act. Peter says, get your mind tuned in. We have to do this every morning of the week when we're trying to get ready for school. And I'm there coaching. You know, it's... Strap it on, buckle up, roll up your sleeves. I'm trying to think of everything I can in my focus. This, I go around the house, focus, come on. We got to focus because we got to get out the door and the bus is about to leave. Now, I'm, I'm actually the bus driver, so the bus could be delayed, but there's a threat. You know, the bus is leaving. Come on, get out the door. Ignore everything except what moves us out the door. Don't play with those Legos. Don't read that book. Don't touch anything. Focus. This is the objective. Go, 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 go. You know, and there I am. That's my job, right? Mom loves and is compassionate. Dad, driving him out the door. Because someone's going to break into your world right now and yank you out of the house and take you to school. So let's go. And that's what Peter is saying. God is about to break into your world. So tune in and focus. Don't let your mind be lazy. Tighten it up. Don't be distracted. Gird it up. Strap it on. Stay focused. So you're ready and prepared for God to move in your life. Now this is difficult to do, isn't it? When we don't know when is God going to break into this world. Could be tomorrow. It could be at this very moment. In my theology, nothing else has to happen before Jesus Christ returns for the church, yanks us all out of here. I mean, it could happen right now. Okay, but let's just assume we're going to finish the service. So it could be in a half an hour or it could be in two weeks. It could be in 10 years. We don't know. And so it's really hard to stay vigilant, isn't it? 
to me, this is the, this is the, the key. This is, this is right where I battle in the spiritual life is staying constantly vigilant. This is where spiritual disciplines fit into your life. They're not magical. Reading the word and praying and being in fellowship with other believers, singing his praises, they're not magical. They don't magically make you more like Christ. But what they do is they continually turn your mind back toward all the things that matter. They continually turn your mind back to the fact that Jesus Christ will return. You will see him face to face. And when that happens, you're going to understand that all of this perishes, but that remains. And so we do that for one another. We encourage and exhort one another. We gather together and we sing praises and remind each other. We open our word and we need to be doing it daily. I'm not, I'm not legalistic and I'm not telling you, you need to get up at 6 a.m. and read for three hours. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, Satan will destroy your life if you do not spend time constantly, consistently in his word, in God's word, and letting it change and renew your mind. That's how it works. Because we are so easily distracted. You have to tune in. You also have to tune out all the noise and the static of the world. Notice the next phrase that he says is, is remain sober. They literally don't be drunk. Obviously, sin in our life distracts us from God's value systems, but he's, he's speaking beyond just don't get drunk physically. He's talking about anything that mentally distracts us. He's actually going to use this same word two more times in this book. He's going to say, be sober. Because the end of all things is near. Therefore, pray. Because prayer keeps you engaged. When Jesus was about to be hammered with temptation in the garden, right before the cross, he pulled Peter and James and John aside and he says, I need you to be with me and I need you to pray. So he says, watch and pray. It's the word gregoreo. It means be alert, be vigilant. Don't fall asleep, but pray Why? Because Satan is about to attack you. Peter, he's going to demand permission to sift you like wheat. That can't be comfortable. So Peter, pay attention. Watch. Stay on your guard. Anything that distracts you mentally. Certainly sin, but even a lot of good things in our world distract us. Because they preoccupy our minds. That means, men and women, we need to learn to tune out our culture. You live in this world so you can't tune it out completely. You have to stay engaged in the world. But there will be times when you need to probably at least tone it down or maybe tune it out entirely. Take a fast. Not a physical fast, but maybe take a a fast from the noise of your culture. Take a fast from your Twitter, your blog, your Facebook page, the videos you watch, the TV you watch, all of the the things, just tune it out, turn it off, just stop for a moment and listen and be silent. Take a walk in the park and listen. Because we now live in a culture that has almost completely lost the ability to just be silent and know that God is God. It's difficult sometimes, even in the middle of a church service, to completely tune it out. I know because I see cell phones coming out. I see these things. 
You think I don't, but I do. And you, you, know, you may say, well, it's got my Bible on it. Yeah. Tune it out. Turn it off. I have a confession to make. I got a new cell phone this week, two weeks ago. I, I, I needed a new cell phone. Uh, if I need a phone at all, I needed a new one. You know, I, periodically I'll tell my wife, I, just, I don't even want a phone. I don't, can I just get rid of it? No, you need a phone so I can find you and we can talk during the day. Da, da, so so I, I keep the phone. And I did need a new one if I was going to have a phone because literally, I mean, I dropped this thing so many times. The antenna had it fell off. It came off in my hand. So the phone was, didn't work. It's all busted, cracked up. So I went in and I got the only reasonable phone for me to purchase, which was a new iPhone 4. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, know, you know, I know some of you are like, oh, that's awesome. And others, curse you. You went to the dark side. I understand. Split opinion, split opinion on the iPhone 4. But I just got to say, wow, that's an amazing piece of technology. This thing is amazing. <laughs> it's just, you can do so much. It's just, it's stunning. So I brought home my new phone and my kids saw the new phone. And the first thing they see, they go, wow, dad, that's really cool. Do you have any games? Because, you know, community property, let's share your phone. They got any games. And then they said to me, they said, do you have angry birds? Okay. Half of you have no idea what angry birds and you're going, what's angry? What's he talking about? That was my response. I go, do I have angry birds? <laughs> I don't know. Honey, do I have Angry Birds? <laughs> Angry Birds is the, the most popular game on the iPhone. It's the most popular app in the game category that you can download on your iPhone. And my eight-year-old and my five-year-old both knew about Angry Birds, and I didn't know anything about Angry Birds. So I downloaded Angry Birds. It's really cool. <laughs> so they taught me how to play Angry Birds. I played Angry Birds this week. It was really fun. I got through a lot of levels. I got through so many levels that... Um, when I received an email, I received it actually twice. You know, it's one of those pass around emails or whatever curses are going to come upon you kind of thing. So I got it twice. I got it once from my mom. <laughs> and I got it from my uncle. And it was very convicting, but it said, how much time do you pay attention to your phone as compared to the time you pay attention to the word? Just you think about that for yourself. Uh, I was convicted because I realized I had, I had spent more time with my angry birds than memorizing the word this week. It just becomes so preoccupying. And as I've gotten into this, this whole um, Apple thing, you know, um, I realized that what Apple really wants is to control your life. Okay? Because you, uh, yeah, I mean, it was Microsoft. They wanted my life, and I, I went away from them, and I sold out to Mac. You know, they want your phone. They want your computer. They want your iPod. They want, the, they want your iPad. It's a pod and a pad and a phone, and it's everything. And they want them all to be integrated, so you've got to get their software to integrate all of them because they talk together better. And then pretty soon, man, you're just, it's, it's everything. Well, you know, that's what our culture wants to do. And you have to stop and say no. It's fun. It's interesting. It can be convenient. But what will cause me to grow in Christ-likeness? 
when I am preoccupied mentally with all things God, I will long to be like God. Because when I'm preoccupied with all things God, I will see God in his beauty and his splendor and his, his rightness and his compassion and his kindness and his love and his justice and his mercy. And I will want to be like God. I will want to be holy. When I become preoccupied with God and not preoccupied with the noise of the world, Notice the next section that Peter addresses. Verse 14. Having fixed our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, then, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy because I am holy. Therefore, be holy. It's the first command that addresses behavior. And it's really an all-encompassing idea that kind of washes over the rest, the other five. It's be holy. We can't overstate how important the concept of holiness is throughout the Bible. Old Testament and New Testament, it's everywhere. Some theologians think that holiness is the central attribute of God around which all other attributes should be arranged. It is God in all of his perfections. God is holy. To give you a simple definition, it means this, something that is set apart, distinct, not ordinary, uncommon, The vessels in the temple that were used for worship were set apart. They were holy. John, 1 John chapter 3, again that Johnny read earlier, says, set yourself apart, purify yourself. And he was talking about that ceremonial, that ritual purity. Be set apart because all of life is worship. Not just when you come into the building, not just when they went into the temple or we come into this building to worship, but all of life, Peter is going to say, be holy in all of your conduct. And there's the word, anastrepho, in everything, be holy. Be distinct, be set apart. What does that mean? Well, in terms of God's holiness, let me give you a couple of illustrations biblically. Exodus chapter 15 reads like this. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. You can see Moses just stretching for words. And it's a a rhetorical statement, obviously. The answer is no one. There is no one like you, God. There's no one who even approaches your holy otherness. You are different. Or at the end of the Bible, book of Revelation, it says, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God. And the song of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. God, there is no one like you. Remember Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah has this this glimpse. He's transported into the very throne room of God. And all the hosts are there, all the angels, and they're singing. And what's their song that they sing over and over and over again, night and day? It goes like this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then they say it again. You know, if you don't like repetition in songs, 
Heaven's going to be rough, man. It's holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. God, you are holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, when you say something twice, it's repeated for emphasis. So three times they say, holy, holy, holy. Absolute and perfect in your holiness. God, that is you. And it doesn't mean simply, God, you don't sin. It means the presence of all that is good is in you, God. Greatest illustration I ever heard of this was, uh, I heard it at a, a chapel service when I was a seminary student. And the speaker was, was talking about his time in Dallas when he used to drive down to the seminary. And if you're, you live uh, in nor- the northern part of Dallas, you come down Central Expressway. As you're coming down Central Expressway, uh, just before you get to the seminary, on your right is Mrs. Baird's Bread. And there's a little depression in the road and an overpass. And as you go down into this depression, Mrs. Baird's is up here to the right. If you go early in the morning, and I often had to go early in the morning, either to a job or to school, I would go as they were baking the bread, and all the smell would come out of Mrs. Baird's bread, and it would just like settle. You remember that? You just settle right there. Even if your windows were closed, it would just go, just permeate into your car. And I like bread. It's like, oh. And even as he said it, I could get this mental image. It just, you know, sparked something in my mind. He said, that's holiness. It's not just the absence of all these things that are evil. It's not just the bread doesn't have mold, but the bread smells good, tastes good, and it's good for you. God is the presence of all that is good. And if you want a life that is good, live like God. Become like God. And Jesus embodied it. He was in human flesh so you could understand it. So live like God. Jesus, you shall be holy because I am holy. What does our holiness look like? Well, if you look in the New Testament, it's discussed in two ways. There's positional holiness. Okay, that is a status. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a saint or literally a a holy one. You're one who's been set apart. The saints don't always behave like saints, do they? No, we don't. Nevertheless, they are set apart because God's spirit, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 2, set them apart, sanctified them, or declared them to be holy, marked them out for God. That's positional holiness. What Peter's talking about here is experiential holiness, God's character being progressively worked out in our lives. And he gives a negative and a positive to this. First, he says, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. And that word for conformity is the word from which we get schematic. What he's saying is the world has a drawing for your life and every day you are filling in that drawing. You're actualizing that design. Don't live according to the world's schematic. The world has a plan for you, a program for you. Satan has a design for your life. This is what he wants your life to look like. This is the drawing. Don't believe it. Don't buy into it. Don't live for it. Don't follow it. Follow God's schematic for your life, which is the life of Christ. Imitate this drawing and become like him. Don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance when you were a fool. I mean, Peter does not mince words here in this section. Don't go there. 
but follow the schematic of God. Instead, be holy, he says, in all of your behavior. Okay, or again, here's our same words used three times in just this section. All of your conduct, all of life, let it be conformed to the image of God. Okay? And he's going to give us three reasons why this is absolutely critical. Read with me again, chapter 1, 1 Peter, verse 17. And if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. The first reason that we should live differently is because God cares. Okay? It matters, Christians, how you live. Peter is talking now about the evaluation of a believer's life. God will evaluate our lives, believers. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your relationship with him is secure in Christ because God is faithful. You cannot lose it. You will fail from time to time. You will sin. You will struggle. But the relationship is absolutely secure. You can't lose it. At the same time, God will look on all of our lives and he will evaluate our lives. He will look at the works that we have done, which includes the things that we've spoken and the attitudes of our heart. And he will judge impartially. That is literally, he doesn't receive the face. He doesn't show favorites. He judges just according to truth. Every thought in our mind, every emotion of our heart, Every act of our hands, every word that we speak, God will judge that. He will judge all people. Each one will be evaluated according to his works. And he's talking here again about the evaluation of Christians, not non-Christians. Not those who don't believe in Jesus, but those who have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, a permanently established relationship, you will be evaluated at what is called the judgment seat of Christ. And only believers will be there Eternity is secure. That's not the issue at that point in time. The issue is, did you live well? It's God having the opportunity to reward you for doing well. God having the opportunity to smile upon your life and say, well done. And we're going to talk a lot more about this later on. Chapter 4, Peter comes back onto this topic and he says, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And we're going to talk about specifically what happens. We're going to get into passages like, Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What's going down at this moment in time? But what I want to emphasize just this morning is, is simply the fact that believers, it matters how we live. And God doesn't want us to be caught off guard. So he tells us ahead of time, your life will be evaluated. I'm paying attention. It matters how you live. I didn't save you simply so that you could have eternity. I saved you so that you would live a holy life, so that you'd go out into the world And you would proclaim my excellencies to those who are walking in darkness and need to be rescued. And so it matters. Peter says the proper response to that is fear. This is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. And it doesn't mean fear and run away. It means fear and bend the knee. And give proper honor and respect to the creator of the universe. Honor him. Respect him. 
That's fear. Writer Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Wisdom. And wisdom in Hebrew is the word chokmah. It means good living. Okay? The fear of the Lord starts you out on a good path. That's good living. And notice the one who judges us is the one who is our father. If you call upon, literally, if you call upon him as father, that is, if you worship God as your father, Abba, not a judge you've never known or seen who doesn't know you or anything about you, but the one who judges and evaluates your life is father. And he longs to be compassionate upon you. And he longs to show mercy to you. It is your father, your good father, who looks at your life and evaluates your life. And he would be a bad father if he didn't evaluate your life. And exhort you and encourage you and motivate you to live well and not waste your life. It's the father that we worship, the father that we call upon. And it's the father who evaluates our lives. And so we can trust him because he loves us. I remember uh, when I was a kid, I hated it when my parents would say certain phrases and I swore I'll never say that, you know, and then I, and then I hear it coming out of my mouth and I heard it the day saying to my kids, you know, this, this hurts me more than it hurts you. But it's true once you're in the position of a parent, okay? And that's how God feels toward us. He only disciplines us for our good and he warns us ahead of time, get ready. Second motivation, because all else is futile. Any other pathway of life is futile. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. You you, you inherited this, again, it's the same word, way of life, this pathway of life. And it is, it's futile, he says. And the word means basically something that can accomplish nothing. It's empty, it's useless, it was used of idols. People would turn to idols and they'd say, oh, save me, deliver me, and not acknowledge it's a block of wood, it's a block of stone, it can do nothing, it can accomplish nothing. And Peter is saying that lifestyle was futile, it was empty, it was useless, it was stupid. Okay, it was really stupid. But God has rescued you, literally, redemption in this context means to pay the price and then set free. To pay the price and then set free. And you have been set free from a useless, wasted life. So don't go back into that pathway and waste your life. This week I stumbled across a fascinating quote from Charles Darwin's autobiography. It was really very uh, transparent. I had never um, read or seen this kind of transparency from Darwin. It was late in his life and he wrote this. He said, up to the age of 30 or beyond it, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. And even as a schoolboy, I took intense delight in Shakespeare. Formerly, pictures gave me considerable and music very great delight. But now, for many years, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I've tried to read Shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I've almost lost any taste for pictures or music. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight which it formerly did. My mind seems to become, have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. 
but why this should have caused the atrophy of that part of the brain alone on which the higher tastes depend, I cannot conceive. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness and may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part of our nature. He's saying, where did it go? Because my life is not rich any longer, even though the world is at his doorstep. He's famous by this point in time, and he's powerful by this point in time. He's probably wealthy at this point in time, but his life is a vacuum. It's empty, and he doesn't know it, but we know it. It's because he has turned away from God, and now he looks out on scenery, and he used to go, wow, that's marvelous, Because inside his heart, there was eternity set by God and there was something stirring him, moving him toward God. And he said, no, not God. Chance. And he saw beauty in a picture and he said, no, not God. And he heard beauty in a poem or in a piece of music and he said, no, not God. And all of those things then lost their beauty to him and his life became empty and futile and waste. And Peter is reminding us that life without God at the very center of our existence becomes empty and futile and a waste. And you've been rescued from that. God paid the price through Christ and he rescued you from a wasted life. A third motivation. Look with me in verse 19. You have been rescued with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he, Jesus Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God and Christ and the Spirit had this incredibly intimate and enduring relationship even before the world was made and gave it up. And in these last times he has appeared for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Remember, suffering, then glory. So that your faith and your hope are in God. Where is your hope today? And what are you you fixed upon? What preoccupies your mental energy? What what grabs you? And not just when you come on a Sunday or not when you just have a quick devotional, but throughout the day, are you setting your mind on the things above? Are you choosing to say, I will live for and hope for all that I will receive when I see Jesus Christ? And I can enjoy what the world has to give, but I don't hope in it and I don't trust it because I know ultimately it will perish. It's a lie. I believe and I hope in what lasts, what endures. Where is your hope? As we close, I want us to take a few moments and let's just have the courage to say, God, search my heart through the power of your spirit. Where do I need to tune in to the things that really last? And where do I need to make significant changes in my life so that I'm stopped, so I stop being dominated in all of my thinking and all my affections by things that perish? Let's take a few moments and allow the Lord to examine our hearts and then I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to your people. And I pray, Father, that we would be bold and courageous to listen to the voice of your Spirit and make deep and lasting changes in what we set our affections on. I pray, Father, that we would learn to recognize and hate the lies of the world and the false hope that it offers, and that we would hope in Jesus Christ 
and that we would live for the holiness that can be ours as we gaze upon you and your character and you transform us into your likeness. Father, I thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have shown us this is the pathway. Walk in it. Father, I thank you for putting us on that pathway through Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, for making it free. We pray all these things in the name of your blessed Son, Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Set your hope on him this week. See you next week.